is the fact that there is a rich history behind this church, for sure. We want to celebrate that, but one of the reasons we um, combined that with a missions emphasis is to say that the great biblical foundation and the rich history actually fuels a mission that continues into the present and that we pray will continue into the future. And by God's grace, it will. And so next week, what I really want you all to do is to consider joining us for our testimony service, but also how can you share a testimony of what God has done in your life through the ministry of Fellowship Bible Church at any point over the last 50 years? It could be the last 50 days, or it could be all the way back into the 70s and the 80s, as those two stories really emphasize what God was doing uniquely and richly through this local body of believers in the 80s to draw people to himself and to bring people from a, a place of sinfulness and lostness to pursuing Christ and even pursuing Christ around the world as missionaries. Um, it was a great movement of God that this church got to witness and be a part of. And we're praying for a new season like that in the season ahead. And so join us next week. You'll hear some more testimonies, and we'd love for you to participate in, um, in sharing some testimonies. We're going to turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to continue to reflect on this idea of what sort of leaders God uses. And we can reflect back in Fellowship Bible Church of what 50 years of leadership has looked like, and we can see glimpses of that in those testimonies. As we hear testimonies of the last 50 years of Fellowship Bible Church, what we continue to hear is this is a church that presented the Bible as it is for men as they are. This church has, had, has long had the reputation of a Bible-teaching church, of a church that emphasizes the Word of God and teaches the Word of God well. It's, it was said to me a lot early on that the heritage of Fellowship Bible Church was that we were once the best Bible teaching church in town. I love that heritage, but it's also always been in my view, that's not good enough. Because here's the problem with being the best Bible teaching church in town. That definition involves one person being faithful. Only the person that stands up here and preaches and teaches the word. That's great to have a faithful person preaching and teaching the word. But to be the best Bible teaching church in town is not a high enough goal. We want to be a church that so engages with the word of God that all members of this body of believers are engaging in the word of God and obeying the word of God and discipling others with the word of God. Not just a church that teaches it from the top down, but a church that engages it at all levels of leadership within the church. And so as we talk about leadership last week, um, I was speaking to one of our members after the service about his role within the military and how in the military there is such an emphasis on leadership training because in the military everyone is seen as a leader. In every role within the military, you must be prepared for the opportunity you have to lead whoever is your subordinate. Or whatever circumstance comes to you, you must be prepared. This week, our country, our nation, celebrated Veterans Day, in which we honor those that serve our country and protect our country and put themselves in harm's way for the sake of our freedoms and our safety. 
And what we learn from Veterans Day is that this country has a long history of people stepping into positions of leadership, answering the call to, to act heroically after periods of preparation. But what you learn from military history, what you learn from our nation's own history, is that you never know when somebody that is preparing is going to be called upon in a battle scene, in a moment of great historical significance, to be the one to step up to lead. Sometimes the ones who step up to lead are the ones that are expected, that are in the positions of leadership. But military history shows us that in war, things get messy. In battle, lives are lost. And the great heroes are those that step up often unexpectedly. Because within a military system, everyone is responsible. Everyone takes ownership for their own role within the mission. And so as we approach the leadership of Christ's body and Christ's church, I ask you to think along those same lines. That what matters in defining leadership for Christ's church is not just those that are on top that have the responsibility, but rather every individual that names the name of Christ shares in this responsibility of the kingdom work that God has called us to. That's how a group moves from an organizational church to a movement-centered church where we're making disciples, where we're reaching the lost, where we're actually affecting our community, affecting those that are hurting, that are struggling within our community, when everyone takes ownership for their role and steps into the mission that God has given us. And so I challenge you today, as we continue to reflect on leadership within the church, I challenge you to think, where are you leading within the church? Where are you called to responsibility and to service within Christ's kingdom and within this mission that he has given us. So as we reflect today, we're going to reflect how do we identify the highest level of leaders that God chooses and raises up for us, but also how do we, every one of us, pursue maturity so that God can use us as leaders and as ministers in his great mission. We started these two passages from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 last week, and we will continue. I'll start in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 2, and I'll just read verses 2 through 6 to you. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And I'll stop right there. Overseer, we defined it last week. Overseer, elder, pastor, this is the high level, the top level of church leader that we're talking about. This church leader must be above reproach. The husband of one wife or man of one woman, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now that's the one that we skipped last week. We talked about all of verse 2 except for able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then similarly, we'll move over to Titus chapter 1 and read just a few verses there. Uh, verse 6 through 9. 
anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here is our task for today. We're going to continue to understand this definition of God's leader from Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And we'll see four traits of the leader here in these two passages. A leader teaches the word of God, manages the household well, is an experienced believer, and deserves the respect of outsiders. Those four traits are the four that we will see today. First, from 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.9, a leader teaches the word of God. Among the, the qualifications in verse 2, all of them relate to character except for one, which is a skill. And so today, we're focusing in on the skills of a leader. Last week, what I told you is that God's primary concern in selecting and equipping leaders for his church, his primary concern is character. Not skill, not talent, not experience, not personality makeup, or any of those things that we might use in the modern corporate world to develop a leader or to identify the right leader to fit within an organization, but a leader's character is what matters most to God. So he spends the majority of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 defining the character of a leader. First and foremost, God's leader must be a holy follower of Christ, someone who is pursuing righteousness and pursuing the, the cause of Christ. But here, Paul tells Timothy and Titus, there is a skill that a pastor overseer must have. And so we must learn how to recognize and identify this skill within leaders. And that skill is able to teach. Stated quite simply in 1 Timothy 3.2. Able to teach. But in Titus 1.9, there's more definition given to it. Because in Titus 1.9, the, the teaching task is the crescendo. It is the highlight of the whole passage. In, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is emphasizing the character and being above reproach above all else. But in Titus 1.9, he ends with the teaching task of the pastor teacher. Why is that? The context gives us plenty of clues. You read all through 1 Timothy 2 Timothy, Titus, which I've told you before, they kind of go as a package here. That there are three letters written in, into similar contexts. Two young ministers in two very difficult church contexts in the city of Ephesus and on the island of Crete. And Paul is writing both of them to instruct and equip new leaders within the church. And both churches have the same problem. Do you remember what it is? It's false teaching. It is the fact that many have aspired to leadership. Many have said, look at me, I can teach the word. I will open the word and I will present it to the people. But as those false teachers have risen up because of their personality, charisma, 
their oratory skills, whatever reason those people got influence. Maybe it was just the influence they had in the outside community before they became Christians. But these people were able to gain some level of authority in the church. And they were misleading God's people. So these three books were written into this context, this challenge of false teaching. And so for Paul, this is a huge priority. And for any church, then, this must be a huge priority. We've got to know what we're all about as a church. This matters. We must know the truth of the gospel. We must know who God is. And we must know how to train and equip people to know God and follow God. And so these books, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, call this the good deposit. Good teaching is a good deposit. It is, it is this valuable resource that is a treasure that must be protected. And false teaching must be combated. For Titus 1.9, look at it. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. If you study leadership in any context, you will learn that leaders are speakers, and speakers are leaders. Nations shift. People change through the words that are spoken or written by great leaders. It's true throughout all of human history. Again, look back on just our nation's history. And look at the powerful words that shaped the early foundations of our nation. Look at the words of the Declaration of Independence and how that, that shaped the, the nature, the culture of a young nation. Look at the words of the Gettysburg Address and how that shapes people. Look at how people have shifted over time through great military leaders, through great governmental leaders. The great speeches of history shape and change people. We know that leaders are speakers and speakers are leaders. But there's something significant about what Paul is saying about a leader and the speech that he gives. In fact, we can look at another letter for Paul's example. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. It won't be on the screen, but I'll read it to you quickly. Paul says to the church in Corinth, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, God's chosen leaders are not just great orators. God's chosen leaders are not just great crafty speakers. God's chosen leaders are those that are faithful to present God's book to God's people. That's the call. Because you don't, listen, the church in Corinth did not need Paul's wisdom. And you don't need my wisdom. And so when Paul came into the church of Corinth, he did not present to them his own wisdom or lofty speech. He presented Jesus Christ and him crucified. He presented the message that is the central message of all of Christianity. And so when we gather here together, I hope you don't gather to hear a great speaker. I've told you before, you can find somebody better online if you're looking for a great speaker. 
but I hope you gather to hear the word of God presented, to hear the gospel presented, and to hear Christ and him crucified. Because that is what the church needs above all else. The church doesn't need great leaders who are going to who are going to twist words and convince you of things and change your mind about things and get you to believe things that you didn't believe before through the craftiness of their words. The church needs people that are going to present the word of God as God wrote it to his people so that the spirit of God can change you. It is not the speaker that changes hearts and minds. It is the spirit of God through the word of God that changes hearts and minds. And so we misunderstand this all the time. When we hear somebody speak, and we hear somebody, and we think their words are so powerful, and they're so convicting, and they're so convincing, and it is very easy as human beings to give credit to the human that is delivering the words. When in reality, if any of those words are convicting, it is the Spirit of God and the Word of God that is doing the convicting. Because God's Word says about itself, that it is living and active and that it cuts in to convict of sin and that it breathes new life into people. And so God's spirit is working in his church and where leaders fail is to trust in cleverness and ingenuity and modern methods and to ignore the book and the word of God, which is what we as people need. The word of God in the Spirit of God. But the Word of God doesn't just present the truth. In Titus 1.9, it confronts the error, confronts and rebukes those who contradict it. So, listen here, church. If we are going to be a faithful church for another 50 years, every single one of us has to go deeper in the Word of God so that we understand what is the truth of the Word of God and that we all understand how to confront the error, how to confront the teaching that contradicts the truth of the scripture. We must all go deeper in holding fast to this trustworthy word. We need more teachers within Christ church, not just within Fellowship Bible Church, but within the global church. And the testimony we just heard is from a man who was called to ministry, who was called to Christ out of Fellowship Bible Church, called to ministry out of Fellowship Bible Church, and is now involved in planting churches in Asia and equipping ministers all around the world in preaching the word of God in faithfulness. And that's a pretty cool story. And when we hear that sort of a story, we recognize this is the church doing what God has called the church to do. So we keep doing it. We keep teaching the word of God, and we keep every single one of us going deeper in the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Will you know, will you know when a leader comes with lofty speech and with clever words and contradicts the word of God? Do you know the word enough to discern for yourself when that error comes. Because as much as Paul is calling for elders, for teachers, for pastors to, contra or to come and confront false teaching, the call I'm giving you as your pastor is that every single one of us needs to develop this ability to know when teaching is false, to know when teaching is the truth of the gospel, and to pursue the good teaching 
we live in a really strange moment in time. There has never been more teaching of any kind available at any other point in history. We have more teaching resources than any previous generation. And that means two things. We have more good teaching and we have more bad teaching available to us at the same time. And therefore, God's people need more discernment than ever before. Because while we have more good teaching and we have more bad teaching, we have more of that teaching in the middle, that messy middle. Some of the bad teaching is really easy to identify. Some of the good teaching is really easy to identify. But what about this really provocative, really interesting stuff in the middle that kind of sounds like the gospel, that names the name of Christ, and we don't really know what to do with it? We all. We all have to go deeper in the word of God to understand what it means to preach Christ and him crucified. The message of the gospel, brothers and sisters, says that every single one of us is a sinner and says that every single one of us must be confronted with that. That's everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room and every nation, tongue, and tribe must be confronted with the fact that you are a sinner that has missed the mark. That's what sin means. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short of God's righteous standard. And because of that, you are guilty before a holy and righteous God. And you deserve the punishment that comes from God for being a rebel against the holy king. But Christ, but Christ came and was crucified because God loved us and God sent his son to die for us so that we would have the opportunity for new life. Not because... We're better than everybody else. But because we received him. And to, be, to those that receive him, God gives the opportunity to become the sons of God. To those who repent of sins and believe in Jesus, we have the opportunity to become sons of God, not by our own actions, not by our own worth, not by our own ingenuity or wisdom or anything like that, but simply by God's grace, his free gift. That's the gospel. That's what we preach. And when we start to hear little divergence from that, that says it's, it's well, it's receiving God's grace plus you, you do this, plus you do this other thing over here. Or if we even, if we come over this way, this error, we're not adding to the gospel, we're actually taking away from the gospel and saying, well, you really don't need repentance God loves everybody. God wants to save everybody. You don't need that level of repentance to receive the love of God because God is so loving. We cannot accept different versions of the gospel like that. We must stand up against those and we must present the word of God, Christ and him crucified. That's how God's church pursues health. And that's a responsibility for every single one of us. There's a second skill. So that's the first skill. Okay? We have a lot of character teaching last week, and then we have this one skill, leaders teach the word of God. And the second skill is that leaders manage the family well. In addition to this teaching skill, there's the skill of management. And it's really simple, the comparison that Paul is making here. Paul simply says, if somebody can't manage his own household, how will he manage a household of households? Because what is the church? The church is a family of families. And so if somebody can't lead a family well, can't manage a family well, 
then he cannot manage a family of families well. And so the, the commitment here that Paul is asking is for somebody to be faithful within their own household first. So a pastor, an elder, must prove himself as husband and father first. And then, then after proving himself as husband and father, has the opportunity to prove himself within the whole nature of the church. Now, we've said it a couple times over the last couple weeks, so I do believe through 1 Timothy 2 and 3, we're Paul is painting this clear picture of the pastor-elder role being reserved for men. So I believe he's still talking about men here, but I want to clarify something. He is not negating the possibility of single men serving in leadership here. This is, again, one of those things where when somebody has they, their household that they are managing and leading, they must do it well. I do not believe that Paul is saying a single man can't serve within the church. I also think it's very important for us to recognize that Paul does value women serving in the church in other roles as well. And so there's, a, there's an approach that I'm taking in some of these passages here, okay? As I said a couple weeks ago, elders, overseers, pastors are men, according to 1 Timothy 2 and 3. But we want to see male and female, men and women, serve and lead within the church well. So there are some times when I'm going, to, I'm going to change the language to apply it to everybody a little bit, not because I want to be soft with the language of Scripture, but because I want us all to be pursuing this picture of character that God presents for us. The picture of character is the same. The picture of leadership is the same. Women should aspire to the same level of maturity, character, and the skill within their own households, the skill within teaching. All of those things are things that women can aspire to as well. And it's good for the church for us all to be pursuing maturity. But God makes a clear example here that you have to be faithful within your own home before you can be faithful within God's house. There's some questions that come out here um, particularly in um, when it says that the uh, children are to be believers in Titus uh, 1, 6. Let's look at this. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The word there for believers is, um, is literally faithful, meaning his children are walking in faith. This is a very hard and difficult requirement to put, with, put, to put on a leader. Are we saying that we cannot have a leader within the church if that person's children walk away from the cause of Christ or walk away from relationship in Christ? It is not consistent to believe that the faith of a child depends upon the faith of the parent. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that the relationship of a child to God is dependent on the child and God. You cannot pray for your child to receive Christ. You, you cannot convert your child by your own will and by your own wisdom. God converts the child. The child receives salvation. And so we have to be very careful. So what does this mean when the word literally means that the, the children are to be faithful? I would simply tell you that it means that the spiritual responsibility of the father is seen very clearly by those in the household and out of the household. That somebody cannot come to you and try to pastor you and pastor the church 
when they're not preaching the gospel and training their own children to follow Christ. That's not a, call, that's not a reasonable thing to do. But rather, first, the person must present the gospel to their own children. The father must direct his children in the way of righteousness. And whether or not they receive it, that is up to the child. But they must, the child must, be kept within reasonable conduct and not be insubordinate, not be open to this great charge that would embarrass the church or embarrass the father. I do not believe that every, that every time a child walks away from the faith as a prodigal, it disqualifies a pastor or an elder. But I do believe that if a pastor or an elder is not faithful in presenting the gospel to that child and training that child in the way of righteousness, that can and should disqualify someone from serving in church leadership. We should expect leaders to prove their worth at home before they lead in the church. And there's lots of different ways we can apply that management. It's just the, the, the fact of responsibility. If we're asking somebody, if you are asking somebody to shepherd your life in a time of crisis, don't you want to see that that person has a proven track record of faithfulness within their own household? If you want somebody to be a manager of a church, which is now, if you look at through a modern church framework of facilities and finances and staff and all of those things, you want your elders to be disciplined, to manage their own resources well if they're going to manage God's resources. And so leaders, God's leaders, manage their households well first and prove their worth, prove their leadership ability within their own households before they move into the management of the household of God. Next, leaders are experienced. This kind of relates, first, this is 1 Timothy 3, 6. It talks about the experience of the leader. Um, Paul says that God's leader should not be a recent convert. And the why is what's most instructive here. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The problem, the problem is not so much the, the lack of experience. The problem is the lack of character. Again, I'm sorry, I'm beating a dead horse here. It's all going back to character. The problem with a recent convert is a lack of maturity and a lack of character. Now, this, this goes against our modern way of thinking. Because in today's world, what we want is we want, particularly within my generation and younger, we want to raise into positions of leadership and notoriety as fast as we can. We want to jump up and we want, to, we want influence. We want to manage our influence and, and, and be able to influence people for something. That's what you're trained to do in this society, in this generation, is to figure out who you are yourself, and within your own sense of individualism, you express your individualism to the point of influencing others to be like you, to follow you in some way. And what Scripture is telling us is, actually, you should follow first, not Find out something uniquely significant about you and influence others to follow you in wherever it is you want to go, but actually find somebody to follow before you try to lead. 
That's the pattern that Paul is giving to Timothy and to Titus. Paul was the pattern that they followed. Jesus was the pattern that Paul followed. And what Paul is trying to do here is to instruct these young men, Timothy and Titus. Remember, guys, these are, they're still young men. So he's not putting this ridiculous bar and say, you got to be 45 years old and walk with Christ for 30 years before you can be a, a leader. That was impossible. Recognize, this is still within 30 years of the resurrection that these letters are being, being written here. This is within a decade or two of the gospel being preached in these cities in the first, for the very first time. There's not 20-year, 30-year believers walking around Ephesus and Crete. When he's saying a recent convert, he's meaning somebody that was converted last week. We can't take this so far that we tell people that after you've been walking with Christ for four years or 10 years or 15 years, you're just not ready yet. What the circumstance that Paul was talking about was somebody who was filled with pride, maybe filled with some natural charisma, that came in and converted to Christ and then immediately started trying to lead. We see that problem in the book of Acts. We see people that try to lead too quickly. And we see God pushing back against it. We can't, we can't go so far to look at people who are growing in maturity and say, no, 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 you're still a recent convert. Paul's definition of a recent convert, I'm telling you, was somebody that was converted within the last months or days or maybe year at the most. But if you are sitting in a position now where you're thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready to be a leader, I'm not sure I'm ready to to step up because I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s, still a young Christian, I've been following Christ for five or 10 years, do not use this verse as an excuse. It's time to step up. It's time to grow. It's time to pursue Christ, and it's time to be a kingdom leader because God is very concerned about young leaders who come in conceit and come in personal pride and hubris, and try to take over. That's where all this false teaching was coming from in these two cities. But let's not be so careful about false teaching and about personal pride that we never let young people lead. Because as I started, every single one of us has the responsibility for the kingdom mission that Christ has called us to. Not everybody's going to stand up here and present the word of God to the whole assembled people of God. But everybody's going to lead somewhere. Everybody should lead somewhere. And so if you're not leading within Christ church anywhere, the question is, where's the opportunity? Is there an opportunity within the men's ministry, within the women's ministry, within the youth ministry, within the kids ministry, within the worship ministry, within the greeting ministry, within the prayer ministry, somewhere? Is there an opportunity for you somewhere? And I guarantee you, there is. There's an opportunity for somebody, even if it's not a role within the church. Listen, I'm the leader of the staff of the church. And what my staff, Jason, AJ, Enrica, Ramona, would tell you is we need a lot of volunteers around here. And so it is my job to tell you we need volunteers to fill volunteer slots, okay? Now I'm stepping out of that role and just being the normal pastor guy. And I'm telling you, that you can do a lot of kingdom work outside of the volunteer roles of the local church too. And so it's not just about filling a volunteer spot at Fellowship Bible Church. We want you to do that. Please do that. 
But go find somebody in your office. Go find somebody in your neighborhood. Go find somebody that you have a long-term relationship with and lead that person. Focus on one person who either does not know Christ or is limping along through a relationship with Christ, is hurting and grieving in some way, and lead that person. Lead them to the gospel for the very first time. Lead them to maturity in Christ. Lead them to healing from whatever has been broken in their life. Every single one of us has a role, has an opportunity. One of the things that's interesting about this that I should say, the only of my um, qualifications for a leader here, the only one that appears in 1 Timothy that doesn't appear in Titus is this one, number three, an experienced believer. Paul told Timothy in Ephesus, we need leaders to not be new converts. Paul never told that to Titus in Crete. Why was that? I believe it was because the church in Ephesus was far more established than the church in Crete. The church in Ephesus had been around for a decade or so at the time. The church in Crete was brand new. He couldn't have made that, made that recommendation to the church in Crete. Titus would have found nobody to lead because they were all inexperienced believers. They were all new converts. So recognize, within the context that you're in, it defines the maturity necessary in order to step up as a leader, but there is always something for every follower of Christ to do to lead in his kingdom. Last point here. The leader deserves the respect of an outsider. Now, I'm very careful in my wording here. I'm not going to tell you Leaders must have the respect of outsiders here because I recognize how difficult that is in a hostile culture. But let's look at what Paul is saying here. He says, verse 7 of 1 Timothy 3, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, we know that Jesus also told his followers the world will hate you because they hate me. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Take, take heart, I've overcome the world. The characteristics that define a kingdom leader are different from the characteristics that define a worldly leader. We just have to reconcile that. There's plenty of overlap and similarity here. But the way God calls his leaders to function within the church and within his kingdom is often not the best way for leaders to get results within the secular kingdom. And so what we are going to see time after time, generation after generation, is that some of the greatest kingdom leaders will be persecuted, will be maligned by society, will be hated by society. But what this requirement is getting at is that the conduct of somebody who's going to lead in a position of authority and responsibility within Christ's kingdom needs to live their way with such consistency that you're not going to one day hear, oh, well, this is what happened at home because we, we know what his home life is like before we made him a leader. You're not going to hear one day about this secret of, of what the, the kids are really seeing and who the man is behind closed doors. That person doesn't need to be God's leader. 
nor are you going to hear one day about the way the man behaves himself out in the community at large. That person doesn't need to be a leader. This is a person whose life is so, is so focused on Christ that the character is so pure and it's so true that that person is the same person in the pulpit, in a church leadership meeting, in the home, and out in the community when he lets his guard down. Because character is character when no one is looking. And the, the person that is called to lead Christ church is somebody that pursues righteousness above all else. Now, this is, as I said last week, somewhat of an impossible character definition to check every box every time. But the goal of this definition of maturity, for, again, every single one of us should be pursuing this picture of maturity for script, from Scripture. The goal here is the pursuit. The goal here is the conviction of sin and recognizing where in our lives each and every one of us are falling short of this standard that God is giving us for the people that he calls to lead his church. Every one of us have something that we can look, work on out of today's sermon. We're not called to be perfect, only Christ is perfect. We're called to pursue and to follow and to be conformed, to be more like that perfect Christ that we keep following. Let's wrap it up this way, and we'll ask the band to join us on stage. So now that leadership has been defined in character, skills, and now maturity, Here's three, three points we can all walk away with today. We are to, every single one of us, know the word. Know the word of God so that we may be able to teach others and so that we can know and discern when somebody is a true teacher and a false teacher. That's a call for every single one of us to go deeper in the word this morning. Number two, we are to seek harmony within the home and recognize that before we ask God to give us opportunities within his kingdom to change the world for the cause of Christ, we're going to ask God to give us opportunities to move towards health, healing, and wholeness within our individual families, to make a difference in our families first. And then we'll ask God to call us out into the nations. And number three, we're all called to pursue maturity. Every single one of us has a step to take to grow up into the pattern of maturity that God has given us today so that Christ is represented well and so that his gospel is clearly heard in the church and in the nations. Let's stand and let's worship together. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the darkness stopped the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made? We do. all creation groaning 
you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.